The U.S. Congress takes on the effort to save babies who survive botched abortions. How might that affect Virginia politics, where we also face the challenge of a political divide between the House and Senate? Plus, is the government coming after your gas stove? Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with our president, Victoria Cobb. Well, last week, a lot of us got to go to the legislative prayer breakfast, and it was my first time to be part of that event. And, you know, one thing that stood out to me was the fact that so many people, their leaders there were praying in Jesus' name. And, you know, not only do we have an administration um, where we have leaders praying in Jesus' name, but we have the freedom to do that. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I hadn't thought about the freedom part because I guess I take it for granted. That's probably my 20-some <laughs> legislative you know, session and therefore Commonwealth Prayer yeah. Breakfast. And that event is actually like 56 years old. So they've done it for so long. Um, and But it is, it is the impact of having a Christian administration, people who love Jesus, on that event is, is just really tremendous because we went through years where some of our administration – either weren't Christians or were Christians in name only and literally felt uncomfortable in that skin. So when it was their time to get up and say something, it felt unnatural or it was actually in some cases almost heretical. Um, So it was really nice to have that event back to a what I believe was a Christ-centered event. And do we have any idea who started the first prayer breakfast? I don't, but I will tell you, it used to be called the governor's prayer breakfast up until we had a governor that was uncomfortable with prayer. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it was the Commonwealth prayer breakfast. So he put kind of a distance between his governor office and this prayer event. So it just tells you how it has changed over the years. Yeah, and this time our governor specifically mentioned having humility in the knowledge that the complex affairs of our wor- our world are nothing when compared with the infinite glory of your kingdom. That was part of his prayer. So It's good to see the leadership of your state acknowledging that they submit to a higher authority when they kind of say, we have to be humble. And actually, Lieutenant Governor Sears also just did a beautiful job of illustrating points from the Bible where there were these men or women that were used by God. But she was talking about their failings and how God gave them grace. And it was sort of like, look, we're going to be imperfect leaders, but God gives us grace to try again. And I thought that was, that's just so good to, to, for the people to hear that their leadership is not beyond humility. Yeah. It starts right there when they are accountable to an authority higher than themselves. Um, there's a lot of other egregious oversteps that we can avoid. So yeah. Well, getting into today's topic, I thought we should touch base on some pretty exciting stuff that's happening on the pro-life issues at the national level. You know, we've been seeing um, all of this stuff discussed in the U.S. House. And one of the most crucial things that was happening that they were, vo- uh, were voting on was this bill called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Tell us about that. Yeah, this has been an issue actually since the early 2000s. And really, it's amazing. This issue is simply about whether or not in the case of a failed abortion and a child is actually born alive, are we going to administer medical care? And in particular, is there going to be any penalty for doctors who literally let this child die on a table? A lot of folks might remember Jill Stanek used to be one of the most notable people in this. She was a nurse that came forward in Congress and testified, this was years and years ago, about what she saw in hospitals where a baby would literally be left to die. And so this is back again and just such an important vote. I don't think you even have to be pro-life to say, okay, 
once this child is born, we're going to step in. So um, what's amazing is uh, just the how controversial this still is in our yeah. Congress. It's really quite devastating, actually, that people yeah. would disagree with this. Because it seems like we should be able to agree that we are a pretty barbaric society if we believe in leaving children laying that, you know, a, a born alive infant laying on a table to die. And yet there's debate over this. And there are witnesses that are testifying in these hearings around these bills because there are also state level bills. And they're actually people who have survived an abortion. So they're walking around on this earth telling their story. And somehow that is not convincing that their yeah. life isn't worthy. I can't imagine having a body or at least you know close to half of the body of of u.s government say that my life isn't worth living that i shouldn't have been protected because they don't know they're accountable to god a lot of times back to back to to that (laughs) Um, but in case you're wondering how these people are justifying opposing this um, let's just listen to one of those comments thank you madam speaker this bill is extremist dangerous and unnecessary Extremists because it would criminalize doctors with up to five years in prison and put them in fear of providing life-saving, medically necessary procedures to those who are pregnant. Dangerous because the bill has no exceptions to protect the health of the patient and no exception for cases where there is a serious fetal anomaly. All right, so this senator is claiming that this measure is extremist and dangerous because it puts pregnant women in harm's way. What's your take on that? This is such a crazy tactic that we see all the time where someone who is holding themselves an extreme position, which is that we don't even want to save a human life after it's born, then name calls and says, no, 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 this bill is extreme. No, not at all. This bill is absolutely at the heart of what almost every American would support. So they're, when they defend their position, they're way outside the mainstream. But keep in mind, it's also the fact that this bill kicks in. When it becomes effective is when the baby has been born. It is a separate and distinct human life. This has actually at this point nothing to do with what we do about the pregnant woman who may have medical care happening. I have no idea what's going on in that moment with her, but this isn't about her. That's a separate, you have two separate patients, two separate individuals. Mm -hmm. Are we going to treat both of them or just one of them? That's what that's about. Yeah, she was definitely convoluting the issue there um, in in a really kind of deceptive way. Um, But the U.S. House also voted through another key measure, and that is a resolution to condemn uh, the more than 100 attacks that we have seen against pro-life clinics, churches, and pro-life organizations. And yet, once again, you know, we see people opposing this. This is just a condemnation of violence. I'm amazed that they can politically get away with that. I mean, it would never, if, if, if something happened to an abortion center or something that is considered an entity connected to the left ideology and Republicans did not condemn that violence, it would be the end of the world. You'd see that on every news channel. And yet these guys feel comfortable. I mean, we're not talking about approve or disapprove of their mission. We're just saying they should not have had vandalism. They should not have had a firebomb thrown through their their Mm -hmm. window or something like that. Yeah, and I, I saw where they were trying to say that this resolution should have had something in it about pro uh, abortion clinics being attacked. But, you know, they already have federal law, right, that addresses that. We have nothing. Yes. Protect- and these condemnations of violence are about the activity we have seen lately. When they come up, when you have a, a condemnation of violence, it's about the recent entities that have been experiencing that we don't loop in everything that ever gets any kind of violence that's just not how it's done it's about the current events and the current events are there's a really clearly established effort to conduct 
vandalism or violence against pro-life centers because of their stance on life. And we've seen that right here in Virginia. Yes, we have. We had, um, in particular, the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center experience this. And um, I will tell you, it's heartbreaking to watch people who are there to help women and help unborn babies. And you'd think that when the left accuses us of only caring about the baby, and these centers do so much for the mom, provide so many services, you'd think they could at least say, okay, they do some good work. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, actually try to, right. you know, harm them. I mean, these are ministries, a lot of times working out of churches. And yet it seems like our Department of Justice has just turned a blind eye. I, I feel like that there's been nothing done on this. Yeah, there's actually <laughs> a private organization doing an investigation now trying to figure it out because yeah, we can't count on our government to be even handed in what they investigate. That's incredibly disappointing. I mean, Attorney General Merrick Garland seemed more interested in actually targeting pro-lifers <laughs> and right, parents. Right. The government is actually board. spending time actually on entirely the wrong thing and somehow they the, this is seems to just fly right past people and they, they're not paying attention to the fact that there's not equal justice well again in case you're wondering how people could make a common sense argument against a condemnation of violent attacks and vandalism there was a representative from new york jerry nadler that provided that answer let's just listen to his comments this resolution however is a transparent partisan ploy that is a woefully and unacceptably inadequate condemnation of violence. It comes in the context of, ex of extremist MAGA Republicans' effort to enact a total ban on abortion at both the state and federal levels. And in what appears to be a glaring omission to H. Conrad's three, my Republican colleagues refused to condemn the long-documented history of violence, murder, and mayhem perpetrated by anti-abortion extremists against abortion providers and their patients. Well, what say you, Victoria? Is this an extremist MAGA ploy? Um, all right. <laughs> they just want to connect everything to Donald Trump. That's as simple as it is. Like, that's their tactic. No matter what it is, let's just connect it to Donald Trump because he's unpopular. Therefore, this will be unpopular. If you if you want to look at MAGA as in make America great again and, it, and sort of a, a concept that has nothing to do with Trump, it would make America great again to not have violence against pregnancy centers, but that's absurd. They're just trying to make this into something that's not even connected. It's like their default word, Trump, MAGA, Trump, MAGA. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think they think that that plays with their base. Yeah. Well, on a serious note, what does this level of opposition um, to even just basic protections against violence or just a humane way to protect a baby born alive, what does that tell us about where we're at with our culture and how are we going to break through that kind of stronghold or, or lies. We have really reached a place where we can't seem to even agree on civility, that we can't seem to even agree that if we believe in different things, we should still have a civil conversation, that if we have different missions, our missions still shouldn't be physically harmed by the other side. And that that is disturbing. And honestly, it, it's hard as a, as a believer to say that that's going to come back around other than a spiritual revival, that people actually understand and, and meet the creator and begin to look at all human lives as, as precious and, and that everybody should be able to exist in a society of pluralism and not yeah. feel threatened. Yeah, because when everything gets politicized and we have no higher calling than really just trying to get power, I mean, this is where we land, that we can't be objective and look at an actual life principle at stake because we're so blinded, I guess, by that we have to have power and, and our ultimate goal is to have that control. I mean, I, that's kind of how I'm seeing this. I mean, so. both tribes just kind of run to their yeah. to their corners every single time. And if we have to run to our corners, even when there's violence, there's a real problem. So what is your hope that we can... 
My 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 hope is that really people start to see how absurd it is. I mean, this should highlight the absurdity of where we've come to and that people kind of go, okay, I really do actually wish we could have a conversation about things that we we could actually agree that at least Mm -hmm. these things are wrong. Well, if you want to help us combat those cultural lies and cut through that fog and help remind people about things like the God-given sacredness of human life, one easy way you can help us do that is by sharing this show, Speak Up Virginia. Just let people know that they can subscribe on the platforms, their favorite platforms like Spotify, Apple, Google. Um, It's very easy. And then another way that you can help is if you haven't already, give us a review. If, you know, when we get positive five-star reviews, that uh, escalates our show so that more people can find it. And that is a way that you can help educate more Virginians on what's really going on here. So thanks for listening. Well, back to our uh, regular listening topics. Uh, Victoria, do you think we can take heart in some kind of way in the fact that this did get through at least the U.S. House with you know, with the fact that we have similar proposals, uh, uh, proposals, especially with the Born Alive, um, that we've tried to get through in Virginia. Is there anything inspiring we can take through what's, you know, take from what's happening at the national level? Yeah, I'm very pleased that they felt the need to bring this up early in their in their term, that they actually focused on this, that they got it passed through the House. We do have a struggle in the Senate and at the U.S. level, and this does very much mirror the Virginia situation. We have a House that's probably going to be pro-life, and we'll probably put forward some good proposals and, and have. We've seen them already filed, but we have a struggle in the Senate. So it's interesting how these things reflect each other a little bit. Yeah. Uh, now, in our case, we have a governor that's supportive. We don't have a U.S. president that actually supports life issues. So it's yeah. maybe a little bit better in Virginia than yeah. up in Congress. And that's one thing that we can be encouraged by. When our governor, Governor Yunkin, addressed the General Assembly on the first day of session, he did highlight uh, his pro-life stance. So he has not backed away from that. Let's just listen to that for a moment. As we embark on the next 46 days, when it comes to unborn children, we can come together. We can choose life and choose to support mothers, fathers, and families in difficult decisions. This session, I have asked the General Assembly to come together to protect life at 15 weeks, the point when a baby can feel pain. Yeah, I was actually really pleased that the governor put that into a state of the Commonwealth address. That is actually, even when we've had pro-life governors, not a, not a, not something to take for granted. So I was glad he highlighted it. He put it out there. He has been aggressively saying, this is what we want to accomplish. And we all know, of course, the 15 weeks is only so far, meaning there's a lot of abortion that happens before 15 weeks. We'd love to see every life protected. But he's trying to see, is there anything we can get through this General Assembly? And it's the furthest that we've gotten in several years, right? It is. It's, the, it's actually the strongest proposal we've seen put in. And a lot of years because we had Dobbs and, you know, we were mm-hmm. you know, until that court case, we weren't sure how far we could push the envelope. So it's exciting to see him move on that. And we'll see what happens. And for people who aren't as familiar, this is what is called the pain capable measure, which uh, means that they want to ban most abortions after it is known or thought that the scientifically that the baby could feel pain in the womb. Right? Yeah, we think it's a, an obvious point of should be an obvious point of agreement that at the point at which an unborn child can feel pain, that it's very clear to a doctor who's doing surgery in utero sometimes and you can see a child react to what's going on in the womb. At that point, we should be able to all agree, OK, at least then we're going to make sure that that child can't be aborted. 
Well, the good news is we've already seen Delegate Kathy Byron and Senator Steve Newman follow up with this by proposing measures to carry this forward to ban most abortions after 15 weeks. So what happens now? Well, these are great patrons. These folks have great experience trying to push a bill through the legislature, and it's going to be a hard course. So the House bill will go in before a House committee. The Senate bill will go before a Senate committee. And it will really be a lot of testimony and a lot of effort to try to convince those that um, tend to line up on the pro-choice side that, look, this could be a place we could, you know, we don't have to go as far as, you know, the beginning of life. You're not going to agree with that. But we, we could we could land here. And the people of Virginia support that. We think we have a majority that stand strongly at this point of pain, feeling pain. And as mentioned, it'll probably get through the House, but we have a real blockade in the Senate on this issue, um, like similar to what we were seeing uh, at the U.S., the national level. Um but, you know, something that was disappointing recently was this special election that we had out in Virginia Beach, where that could have made a real difference in getting this through the Senate, or at least the committee in the Senate. And yet, this was lost by 348 votes. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. Again, this was a Senate seat that became available because a Republican senator got moved to Congress. And so that seat opened up. And so we had this special election. And really, we had a great pro-life candidate on the Republican side who, I mean, he has nine children himself. So he's pretty pretty pro-life personally. I mean, he just is an awesome dad and a veteran. And we were just really optimistic that we we needed to hold that seat. You know, it was held by a pro-life person. We wanted to hold that seat. And as you as you point out, devastating 348 votes. And people just need to think about that. That's just a large church going yes. out and them actually making the difference. I mean, this uh, it just when you think about it, it's it's tragic because now we're starting with one fewer one less vote, I guess you would yeah. say, in the Senate when we look at these life issues. It's less of a chance that we could have at least gotten to a tie and let Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears break that. That's going to be harder now. And again, I think what Victoria said is very important. 348 votes, that is the size of a large church. One uh, congregation could have made a difference in this if they were mobilized on the issue of life. And we're not saying that churches should be political, but when your heart is aligned with God's view of life and that God uh, loves babies in the womb and believes in protecting them, um, this should not be happening. What do you think about churches needing to engage more on speaking clearly about the sanctity of life? Yeah, we need pastors that are willing to preach the whole counsel of the word, which includes actually a lot of scripture about God's design of human beings and them in the womb. And so we we need people to be hearing that. And the, it, church is an absolutely appropriate place to make sure people know enough to be civically engaged. I, I mean, I think of a special election and I wonder how many churches even knew it was going on because it wasn't at the normal election time. Uh, we, we provide voter guides, which is a simple opportunity to look at two candidates. So we tried to encourage churches to just have the was available so their people knew, hey, there's an election. Hey, there's a real choice between someone who is pro-life and someone who is not. Go out and do your thing. Go yeah. to the polls. And I will say our Speak Up Tidewater team that we had distributed voter guides to 18 churches, so I'm proud of them. But there's another opportunity that's very important coming up. If you want to get your pastor engaged in just understanding how this is so important, uh, this is a great opportunity. On February 1st, Defending Life Day at the Richmond Capitol, we are going to have a pastor's breakfast. It starts at 8 in the morning at the Greater Richmond Convention Center. Tell us a little bit about that and how people can get their pastor involved. Yeah, we have an easy place on our website. You can just click on a banner that's about the pastor breakfast, and they can go get signed up. And really, our goal is just to speak specifically to pastors. I mean, what 
their role is in this whole movement is a little different than everybody else. And so we just want them to come out um, and it's just going to be a wonderful time of fellowship and then just a moment where we kind of collect together before we go and engage at the rally later that day. Yeah, and I think Gary Hamrick. Gary Hamrick will be, uh, many people have heard of Cornerstone Chapel up in Loudoun County. He's been a very engaged pastor, so he'll be speaking. And also Bishop Wooden, who is with the Church of God in Christ. And that denomination has taken a denominational stand for life, which actually you can't say about a whole lot of denominations where it's really out there. And so it's exciting to see him come, and we're hoping some of his churches will join. So it's exciting. And it looks like with pastors that come to this, they will have a pretty good chance of getting to pray personally with uh, Lieutenant Governor with some Sears afterward, right? Yeah, that's, it looks like that's shaping up. So uh, there's just some neat opportunities. And we just really want an opportunity to share with pastors in a specific way about just how important their role is in sharing God's word on the issue of life. Okay. And the other thing you can share with your pastor and your church is the March for Life also happening at that day. So as Victoria mentioned, there's a rally at noon and then we're going to march around the Capitol. And this is important because it's the first major event in the state, uh, pro-life event in the state post-Roe. Um, so it's an important time to come out and communicate that now it's up to the states to decide whether they'll protect life and that we need to speak out on this and let people visually see that we're not giving up on this issue. Yeah, the ideal scenario is a pastor comes down with his congregation, he goes to the breakfast, his congregation can go to something that's basically a pro-life briefing and they can go meet with their legislators in the morning and then we all come together and we have this rally and this march to make our voices very, very clear with the legislature. Well, it's that time again. Time for our Inconceivable Moments Award. This is where we're featuring examples of the absolute lunacy and craziness that happens when cultural leaders try to give guidance completely apart from biblical principles. And we're calling this the Liberals' Most Inconceivable Moments Award. Inconceivable! Well, one thing we didn't mention when we were talking about the governor's speech earlier was this mention he had about how Virginia is being held hostage. Those were his words being held hostage to the extreme policies of California. It's a big deal. Uh, Maybe people don't know about this, but this has to change and it has to be undone quickly, this session preferably. And the, the issue is that we in Virginia are now, our emission standards are determined by an unelected board of people that are in California. And we chose to do that through a liberal administration, liberal general assembly. They passed a law, tied us to California. And it literally means that as early as 2024, 30, it's like 35% of the vehicles sold in Virginia are supposed to be electric. That has, an, I mean, I can't even explain what kind of fallout that's gonna have on prices, demand, yeah. all of it. And, and then, we don't have the electrical stations ready yet right. either. That's a whole nother side point. And eventually, it's supposed to lead to to a pretty much a complete oh, yeah. ban. This is on the way to a full yeah. out ban by like 30, 36 yeah. or something. And like you say, where's the infrastructure for this? It's not like we have gas plugs along the, I mean, <laughs> electric plugs along the highway. And I still like to take trips where I don't have to stop for 30, 40 an hour <laughs> yeah. to actually just go to the next. <laughs> it's yeah. bad. But no worries. Apparently, they have a plan B. Oh. And that is they're going to go after our gas stoves now. Because, get this, apparently gas stoves are the silent killers that we should have all been fearing. I I don't even know where to start with this. I really don't know where to start with this. As a person with a gas stove that loves my gas stove, I would be highly, highly 
irritated if they banned my gas stove. And also, I just want to say that when there's electrical issues and your power goes out, it is so nice to have a gas stove because you can still boil your water and do the kinds of things. Um, I can't comprehend how they get to this point where they try to do that. But according to the Washington Post, a Biden administration bureaucrat on something called the Consumer Product Safety Commission said that they were considering a ban on gas stoves or at least limits on the fumes that can they can generate or whatever. So anyway, it does seem like maybe since they initially announced that they got enough kickback, the commission has kind of walked it back a little, if I'm understanding that correctly. But, you know, you already have cities like New York and L.A. and these other places talking about the same kinds of bans in certain homes and apartments. So I didn't know you had a gas stove. Oh, yeah, I love my gas stove. <laughs> so apparently Victoria is guilty of polluting her family. I had no idea. <laughs> Apparently, these criminal gas stoves produce dangerous pollutants um, that conflict with the recommendations from the EPA, otherwise known as the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, plus, along with that, apparently, gas stoves are now a form of political discrimination. Well, I don't even know what to do with the idea of political discrimination and gas stoves. But literally, these folks in Congress, the ones you would expect on the left, you've got, you know, your Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And these guys actually sent a letter to the Safety Commission asking it to take action against gas stoves. And get this. They said because basically it it, it causes it, it makes some kind of imminent danger for households. And it specifically called out black, Latino and low income households. Yeah, I just find it so ironic that this is the conversation about extreme health hazards whenever Senator Elizabeth Warren and Dr. Jill Biden, our first lady, both use gas stoves in their own kitchen. So <laughs> I, I just don't see the risk there for, for the health for the rest of America. It's so nice of them to pay close attention to every other household. Well, and, and they have the space for ventilation. Yes, I guess that's the <laughs> issue, right? Their houses are big enough to handle it. And for those of you who aren't used to hearing Eli, he's our gas... Uh, <laughs> I just said gas roots. He's our grassroots manager. Had gas on the mind there. Sorry. So <laughs> he's our grassroots manager. Um, and he has documented photo evidence of gas stoves, apparently, in these leaders' homes, the Biden leaders' homes. So um, that's that's ironic. But also, I think it's just a little condescending. Um that we seem to be implying here that low-income households, families, low-income families do not have the common sense to figure out their own gas utilities. I mean, as well as, um, you know, ethnic households, can they not figure out ventilation? I mean, I feel like that's discriminatory. I would be so offended if I were in a category they called out and made it sound like I couldn't manage my own household. And actually, I saw a stat that said the fire injury rate was 4.8 times higher in households with electric ranges than households using gas ranges. Yeah. So I'm not even sure if they know what they're talking about, let alone, you know, they should be picking on certain groups of people. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not really getting what the sudden big danger is when I think these stoves have been in existence for over 100 years. I think money's the driver. There's something, you know, they always just have these, all of a sudden, some product, something has to be, and, you know, it's either, you know, something out of climate change or it's some kind of, it's just ridiculous. There's no way this is some new threat that all of a yeah. sudden needs to come on the radar. Well, what they're saying is that it emits things like nitrogen dioxide and other particles. Um, but I just have to say, I've been highly entertained how this has been playing out on Twitter. I just want to mention a Texas congressman, Ronnie Jackson, who is a doctor, by the way. And he had this to say. He says, I'll never give up on my gas stove. 
If the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Come and take it. (laughs) So as someone from Texas, I really appreciate that spirit of that comment. And then there's this response from AOC. She says, did you know that ongoing exposure to nitrogen dioxide from gas stoves is linked to reduced cognitive performance. So again, I just think that kind of encapsulates the whole condescending. Tone but they don't of the worry left. about marijuana decreasing. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is I a really can't good even. point. I can't even. Excellent point. Thanks for joining us for this week's Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. Visit us at familyfoundation.org. That's familyfoundation.org. See you next time. And don't forget, we are stronger when we speak together.